Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by award-winning attorney Jessica Childress. Jessica is the author of Peace, Leaving a Toxic Workplace on Your Own Terms. Jessica has practiced employment law for over 11 years, representing organizations of all sizes and individuals in employment law matters. She is the managing attorney of the Childress firm PLLC, a boutique employment law firm based in Washington, D.C. Jessica holds a Bachelor of Arts in Government and African American Studies from the University of Virginia and a Juris Doctor from the University of Virginia School of Law. Prior to launching the Childress firm PLLC, Jessica served as an associate at two global law firms and as an attorney at the United States Department of Justice. Jessica has litigated retaliation, discrimination, sexual harassment, non-competition, trade secret, unfair labor practice, and whistleblower cases before various tribunals. She serves clients in general business transactions with employees and independent contractors. She has been the recipient of many awards, including the National Bar Association's 2018 Young Lawyer of the Year Award, the Washington Bar Association's 2017-2018 Young Lawyer of the Year Award, the National Bar Association's 40 Under 40 Best Advocates Award, the Kim Keegan Leadership and Advocacy Award, the Greater Washington Area Chapter of the National Bar Association's Rising Star Award, and recognition by the National Black Lawyers as one of the top 100 black attorneys. In 2022, Jessica received the Women-Owned Law Organization's Women Legal Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Jessica has been named to the 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023 Washington, D.C.'s Super Lawyers Rising Stars list. Only 2.5% of practicing attorneys in Washington, D.C. are selected to receive this honor. Jessica is a 2022 graduate of the Aspen Institute Justice and Society Program. She has served as contributor for Ariana Huffington's international media outlet, Thrive Global. Jessica has been featured in numerous publications, including Forbes, Essence, The Huffington Post, Success, and Entrepreneur. Good morning, Jessica, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Good morning, Mary. It's so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Oh, I'm so excited to hear all about you and your own work experience and also your field of expertise, which is one of the things that you do is help people when they have found themselves in toxic work environments, what to do next. Absolutely. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you this afternoon. Wonderful. But let's start like I like to start in this podcast. And will you tell us about your first experience working? What's your first job you ever had? Yeah. So it feels like I've been working forever. I started working when I was in high school. I, my first job, my first official job was working at a grocery store, but even before that I worked at my dad's office and uh, he sold insurance and I answered his phones. And I think I was about five years old, Uh, but my first (laughs) official job, I worked as a bagger at our local grocery store. And then I worked as a server uh, at a local ice cream restaurant in uh, in Virginia, where I'm from. And yeah, those were my, in my formative years, those were my first workplace experiences. In those first experiences, what stands out to you? Are there any experiences that really stand out that you still reflect on in your, in your professional career? Sure. So as a server, I really learned how to interact with so many people because everyone from the community came into this restaurant and got their ice cream and uh, the restaurant also sold food. And so that was just really a, um, it was just a great experience because I really did learn how to deal with people uh, from all over. 
that is such a wonderful experience to have because that's life. No matter pretty much whatever industry we go in professionally, we find people from all different walks of life with different perspectives, different needs. And certainly as being a lawyer, I'm sure you come in contact with all different kinds of people. Absolutely. So just various life experiences. And uh, as a server, it's a high, even working in a, an ice cream establishment, it's just a high demand when you're, you're, you're serving people. So you really learn customer service. Uh, you learn when people are hungry, they're impatient. So you have to learn how to be patient, how to deliver service gracefully. And that's exactly what I did in those formative years. You know, I think sometimes, especially if somebody hasn't worked in the, the service industry, you look at it from the outside. And of course, many times those jobs are very low paying. And you think low paying, low skill, you get what you pay for. But when you've been in those positions, you're like, that is just not the case. It's high pressure and feeling high stakes because you're right. When you're dealing with hunger, like the demand is right there and people can get really heated really quickly. And being able to even at a young age, work on conflict resolution skills because we're de-escalating the hungry people who have to wait or get their order wrong. Indeed. I felt so much pressure in that job. I mean, it was really, really um, just, you know, everybody's hungry. You have families, you have families with kids from all age ranges, uh, ranging to seniors. And so you really have to accommodate a, a wide range of people. So that was a job that actually was one of my most high, I mean, being an attorney, it's certainly a high pressure job, but <laughs> being a server was, a. I mean, I felt strong stress from the moment that you're on the floor because you have to perform with excellence and everyone had a different order, obviously, and uh, to make sure that it was right. And if there was a problem, you had to communicate that problem to your customer um, in a way that maintained their expectations. So, I mean, as I think about, I actually have not reflected on that job in a little while, uh, but as I think about it now, it certainly was, uh, I mean, there was a lot of conflict management in my server position. Yeah, as you were talking, it made me think about being a server and being an attorney. And I guess with almost any professional job as well, you could be excellent 90% of the time, 99% of the time. But that one time as a server that you dropped the boss, I delivered pizzas. Okay. Uh, at one point in my life, I did a lot of stuff before I did my professional career. And, you know, just that one time can just really, you know, tank the night. You can have, you know, a really bad experience. And then, of course, in your professional life, one bad experience or one mistake can have really detrimental effects. Of 1000%. So, I mean, you have to deliver with excellence, I think, in both in both scenarios. And, uh, you know, when you're a, with any service industry, the customer um, is is almost is always right. And so you really uh, have to make sure that you're catering uh, to the customer uh, and, you know, what their expectations are. And so in the service industry, as a server, as an attorney, you always have to make sure that you are uh, delivering expectations or you're setting expectations and then meeting at those expectations. So that experience, honestly, was one of the, I think every person should be a server at least once in their life, because you do interact with such a broad range of people, you are under pressure, uh, and you have to deliver with excellence. And so I think it really was a wonderful experience in my early years. So what did you major in in college? And how did you decide to go to law school? 
So in college, I was a government and African-American studies major, double major actually. And then I was a minor and I had a minor in Spanish and decided to go to law school because I loved advocating for positions I think I've always been an advocate. I was always sticking up for kids and uh, probably driving my parents crazy by, <laughs> by arguing with them on whatever thing that I thought was unfair. Uh, and so being a lawyer was just my natural path. When I was in high school, I was on the debate team. Again, loved advocacy. And we would have really interesting, complex topics to debate. I was on the Lincoln-Douglas debate team. So there were two sides and it was styled as a Lincoln-Douglas style debate. And you had the opportunity to cross-examine your opponents and give a rebuttal statement and give closing arguments. So it very much prepared me uh, for uh, the life of a lawyer. And in undergrad, I went to the University of Virginia undergrad and for law school. And I was a first year judge on the University Judiciary Committee, and we had the opportunity to adjudicate issues of student misconduct. And so that was just a wonderful opportunity just to serve in a judicial role, even though we were students, we hadn't even gone to law school yet, but it was a way to serve the community, uh, deliver justice, uh, you know, in, in the form that students could deliver it. And also, again, be of service and be a leader on, on grounds is what we called it at UVA. We didn't call it a campus but on grounds. Uh, we were able to uh, be of service and be leaders. And then uh, after that, let's see, I was a university counselor on the Judiciary Committee. So the judicial role was uh, reserved for first year students and uh, elected. I believe you had to be elected after your first year to serve in that role. And so after being a first year judge, I served as a counselor and represented the university in proceedings against students and students in proceedings against the university or before the university rather, and defending them uh, in misconduct cases. And it was just a wonderful chance to be an advocate and have real impact on lives at the University of Virginia. And so after that, after undergrad, I applied to law school and the rest is, is history, but I'm sure we'll talk more about it. Uh, but, but it was just really a beautiful way to be an advocate at an early age, being on the Judiciary Committee. Did you have any mentors, role models that you learned from in your style of adv advocacy and working with I'm sure that you worked with some students or others that you thought, well, maybe they they don't have maybe a worthwhile case or maybe I'm not 100% on board with whatever they are claiming. Did you have any mentors that helped you navigate those kinds of waters? Well, as a, I'm thinking back as a counselor on the Judiciary Committee, I don't remember having particularly contentious cases but I will say in terms of mentors, I've had many, many awesome mentors throughout my career, uh, starting really from high school. I served, I was a leader in a program called Metro Teen uh, in Virginia, and it's, it was sponsored through the YMCA, and we were able to do just uh, really impactful service projects, and our summer 
uh, culminated in an internship experience. And I had the opportunity, because I was interested in law, to serve as an intern with the city attorney's office in Richmond. And that was really my first foray into law. I mean, I had seen lawyers on TV, but I had no, I, I didn't have any lawyers in my family. And so this was just a really awesome transformative experience as a 15 year old that I had. And so my supervising attorney became a mentor. Uh, and later on down the road, I've just had wonderful mentors, wonderful lawyer, wonderful lawyer mentors. I served as a judicial law clerk after law school and uh, for a federal judge who is now retired, but he is still a mentor to me. Uh, my first boss, and I'm sure we'll talk about him later, but he was just incredible. He passed away several years ago, but he gave me just the best experiences as a junior attorney. And I mean, every person along my journey has been, the mentors along my journey, they've just been so impactful to my life. That is wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and talk about your first boss. And so he was an excellent boss and mentor. What was it? What did he do? What, what resonated with you? Sure. So my first boss is a practicing attorney. When you're a law clerk, you're not practicing. But my mentor, the judge that I clerked for, he was an excellent boss. He really uh, listened to his staff. He was uh, yeah, just a team player, even though he was a judge. He wasn't uh, just he wasn't a person who I think took himself, you know, the, he didn't make his staff feel inferior. He made everyone feel like they were a team player. We had lunches together. Our, our chambers had lunches together. So he really just made his chambers feel like a family. And that's just one thing that I have always appreciated about my experience as a law clerk. Leaving, you're a clerk usually for a year or two. So I was a law clerk for a year. After my clerkship, I went off to work in what's called big law. So those big corporate law firms, uh, the ivory towers. And it was my first experience practicing as a lawyer. So I passed the bar when I was a law clerk and then went off to, uh, you know, just this wonderful experience as a lawyer, as a practicing lawyer. And my boss, his name was Dan, and he was the managing attorney of our office uh, and I was in the Northern Virginia office of a large firm practicing employment law. And Dan just gave me the best opportunities. As a junior associate, often you are doing grunt work. You might be doing document review. It's not the uh, you know most glamorous task. And Dan just gave me opportunities to excel. He trusted me. And there was a little thing that he did that I have always appreciated. And I don't know if he did it on purpose or if it was just uh, you know something that he did uh, for everyone, but he would always refer to me as his colleague as opposed to his associate. So he was a partner. And so associates are more junior to partners and you really aspire to be a partner. And he would always refer to me as his colleague, not his associate. So it 
really set the playing field that I was an equal and that my opinions mattered when we were brainstorming on cases and we were in a group, if I said something and another person spoke over me or my idea really um, wasn't loud enough, you know, if I like said something and, you know, he had noticed it, but I like didn't assert it again, he would actually say, hey, Jessica, that's a good thought. Say it again. And it was great because it gave me the confidence that I needed as a junior attorney to, you know, one day start my own law firm. And there's just so many um, just great nuggets that I took away from him about leadership, about being an attorney. I would listen to the way that he spoke to clients. I would listen to the way that he spoke to opposing counsel. And he was always so calm. And he was always, he was just unflappable. Um, even in really, really contentious situations, he just was always calm. And I remember there was one time I made a mistake on something and it felt, it was my literally, I think it was my six month mark into the firm. And I was so excited because I just thought I was just a rock star. I was just doing a great job. And then I noticed a mistake in something and I freaked out. It was the end of the day. I think it was 6.30 and Dan left the office around 6 or 6.30. And so I'm like sitting there just like in disbelief about the fact that I've like made a mistake because I'm somewhat of a perfectionist and I just could not believe it. And I call him. I'm like, well, I have to like tell him right away. So I call him hoping that he would still be at his desk. And luckily he was. And he just says to me, Jessica, how did this happen? Okay, don't freak out. It's going to be okay. Don't lose sleep over it. See you tomorrow. And, and that was it. And I just remembered, if I'm ever in this situation, I hope that I will have that level of grace with the person that I'm leading. I hope that I will lead with empathy. And not I hope I will, I made a note to myself to make sure that I do so because everyone is human everyone will make mistakes and I saw him just lead by example in that scenario by remaining calm by not making me feel stupid by not making me feel um incapable and it just I mean I did lose sleep over it because that's just the person that I am I left the office and I was just crying and like could not believe it because when you're an associate, you really want to be the best that you can be in any job. And I could just couldn't believe it. But he did not make me feel that way. He, it was just internally that I felt um, really bad about that mistake. But it all worked out. It was not a big deal. And that lesson that came away from that was you always lead with empathy, with grace, you know, instill confidence in your team. That is wonderful. I mean, what a gift he gave you by all the time you spent with him, him modeling it. And then when you really need it, when we really need people to live out their values is when we make a mistake or have a bad day. And that's when we really see what people believe is when they act and he did it. And he modeled yet again and really gave you that gift of that's who you're going to be or that's what you want to practice because you saw it in practice. Absolutely, absolutely. He was just a gift. I think it's also interesting when you talked about the judge and he's really he really shared power when you were clerking and you talked about a team and he didn't lord it over like I'm the judge and you're my underlings but he really made us this, this sort of I put a note down that 
the shared power. And it seemed also that Dan did the same thing by calling you a colleague. And I always think that a person, the person with power knows how to share it because if you are in control, and that means you're in control of yourself and you have high emotional intelligence, you don't need to make sure that everybody knows that you're in control and putting people in their place and that they remember their place and who they are and who you are. It's, I think, a mark of real of real power to share it. And your own personal power grows as the people around you grow and develop and flourish. That's wonderful. 1,000%. I mean, and that is something that it's it's beautiful to see now that I'm a leader, um, you know, I'm the managing attorney of my own firm and I have a small team and to instill growth and to help my team grow. It's the best feeling. So I but I've learned that from watching leaders around me who were effective at doing that. So you're you do employment law. How did you get into that field? Sure. So I, uh, let's see, I started in in big law and that's where I started practicing. And before big law, so in, in law school, you have the opportunity to be a summer associate. So this is before you graduate. It's like a an internship uh, for law students. And I was able to work at two law firms and I had the opportunity to do employment projects. So I really, really liked employment law because it does have an aspect of civil rights to it. So I was primarily representing companies at the beginning of my career. So when you're in big law, you represent companies uh, primarily. And it was just really cool because you are able to learn just these employment statutes that do have a civil rights component, most of them. Uh, So wage and hour law, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which is the premier civil rights law. Uh, you are able, and I always wanted to be a civil rights attorney. So being an employment lawyer, it was my, it was, it gave me the ability to be a civil rights attorney, advising companies, but still advising companies on their employees' rights. I noticed that on some of your social media, you have a checklist that people can fill out when they are, when they feel like they're in a toxic work environment and sort of the next step. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And have you ever experienced a toxic work environment? And and what was that like? And what did you do? Sure. So I now, as the managing attorney of my own firm, I started my own firm about seven years ago. And I represent both companies and individuals. And many individuals, they come to me when they are enduring a toxic workplace. And so it's important as an attorney for me to make sure that everyone, whether you can afford an attorney or you can't afford an attorney, that you still understand what your rights are. So my social media does give a number of educational, free educational and informational resources so there's a checklist for people to download. Uh, and Mary, if we could put it in the show notes, that would be amazing. Uh, we'll do that. Awesome. There's a checklist that people can download uh, where individuals can, uh, there are several items for individuals to consider if they are trying to leave their toxic workplace, because it's not an easy decision to make. There are a number of considerations and that checklist goes over some of those considerations. So one of those considerations, for example, is do I have an employment agreement that limits my ability to leave once I 
do leave? Like, what are the obligations that I owe to the company if I do leave this workplace? Are there any restrictive covenants that are at play so that I can't compete with the organization? These are all really important things to consider, and they you might not even know to ask. So these are it's information, knowledge is power, and this is why I give out those resources on my website. And so you can certainly download that checklist if you are considering leaving a toxic workplace. But me personally, I have luckily, I haven't experienced a workplace that I consider to be toxic. And there are several definitions of hostile work environment. Uh, there's a legal definition for a hostile work environment. Toxic work environment could encompass a, a hostile work environment. That's a hostile work environment as the law considers it. A toxic work environment doesn't necessarily have to be a hostile work environment. It can just be really, really bad. And so I am lucky that I have not, have not endured a toxic work environment. I've endured environments that I found to be uncomfortable, where I found uh, I, I had bosses that were not the nicest people. I didn't find it toxic, but I will give one example. When I was in college, I was interning for an organization, and my boss was just very, very sarcastic and made me feel really stupid about every question that I asked. And I was young, you know, I was in college. I, this was one of my first jobs out of high school. And so I just wanted to always um, ask because I just didn't know I wasn't the most secure person at work. I just wanted to do a great job. And so I would ask questions and, and the boss just was super, super sarcastic. And I was always afraid to ask questions. And I, as a leader now, I'm always open to questions and I really encourage my team to ask no matter what it is, because I never, ever want anyone to feel that trepidation about asking a question because it, it holds up progress. And we're all on the same team. We're all working towards a goal. And so that was just one small example uh, of me feeling uncomfortable. I didn't think it was toxic, but I definitely dreaded going into the office because of that personality. I really appreciate all of those distinctions you're making because, you know, what is a toxic work environment? And some people don't like that terminology. And we can talk about, you know, what that means or what it means for you, because something could be toxic for you and not for somebody else versus just hard and unfortunate. It's so counterproductive to have a boss who doesn't want questions. I mean, you do not want people to know what they're supposed to do. Do you not want them to grow and be curious? I mean, it just seems a lot of people encounter that. Bosses who ought not be bosses, bosses who are checked out, bosses who don't have time for the people they employ, which means, again, they shouldn't be a boss. And yet that's what people encounter. In my work, I see litigation as, as one of the, well, really the last resort. I want people to solve their problems themselves through developing workplace conflict resolution skills. I certainly want organizations to have resources like ombuds that they can appeal to. So again, they could work through things without going through formal channels. And then there are formal channels and mediation, which I'm a huge proponent of workplace mediation. I am a workplace mediator. But sometimes it has it needs to go even further into litigation for, I think, for a variety of reasons. I've always personally thought that one of the reasons that you would go is for civil rights issues to 
help the company change, help the organization. Sometimes that's the only thing that will make them change so that they comply with the law and, you know, give people the rights that they deserve. And I think that the centerpiece of workplace disputes really start at a lack of respect. And so I think that you can avoid so many conflicts just by respecting employees. And I think that that's where, you know, in my 11 plus years of practicing, that is what I've seen is that you can resolve a number of issues just by respecting your employees in the way that they individually want to be respected. And, you know, I do workplace investigations and I've done just several of them over the course of my career. And I've seen a number of disputes over the course of my career. And that lack of respect is just, I think, the main theme that I see. It's that we just are not communicating how respect looks to each individual person, bringing in our diverse experiences and perspectives. And so, uh, and Miriam, I don't know, I would love your perspective on, on what you see as the, as the common theme in workplace disputes, but that is really what I see. And I think if we have, you know, mediations are wonderful so that everyone is able to get out, you know, what exactly are you feeling? You know, what exactly, I think it's a restorative approach to workplace disputes um, and an opportunity to tell what your grievance is to the other side, tell the other side what your grievance is. And so, um, I, but I do think that if, you know, all sides are talking, I think that what will come out of that conversation is there's just a lack of respect here and there maybe in a misunderstanding of how a person wanted to be respected. Yeah. I usually think it's communication, but it's, a, it's what you're saying is I a hundred percent agree with. So I think that a lot of the main route for a lot of uh, workplace conflict is a miscommunication. And that's because people aren't respecting one another. They aren't listening. And so I mean, I could definitely be challenged and say, no, it is respect because when you're not respecting somebody, you're not listening. You're not really listening. You're not communicating. And of course, if we respected one another, really respected, as you said, the way individuals want to be respected, not how I think everybody, what it looks like for me to respect everybody, right? So much would go away. I mean, so unnecessary, unnecessary heartache, physical and emotional pain, unnecessary a litigation. And it seems to me, when I think about this, the problem seems really simple. And so does the solution. Uh, To me, I think we need better organizational structures. I don't know how bullying, sexual harassment, this kind of discrimination that you see, that I'm sure you see, how it just continues to, to seemingly just grow in organizations where as soon as the light is shine on, it's going to cost them a lot of money and then p- bad PR and let alone how they're harming individuals. I don't understand. I don't understand why organizations and leaders don't step up. Well, I think, you know, leadership, I, I train on this topic. I, I've been training on anti-harassment for many, many years. Um, and in the wake of Me Too, I think organizations were really, really inspired to train and understood, you know, what that meant. And of course, uh, in the in the uh, following years, organizations were really inspired to change organizational culture. But I do think that it starts from the top up. It really starts with 
uh, leaders really understanding the importance of training and then a respectful workplace culture. And that is something that, you know, it just starting with training, starting with conversations that are really, really honest and open. I think the preventative measures that you can take so that you understand what your workplace culture looks like, what people are feeling. I think that's just super, super important. And I think that the organizations that get it right have leaders that are really, really committed to a healthy, happy, respectful, inclusive workplace culture. So why do you think leaders get it wrong? I mean, I'm an optimist about people, actually. I think people, most, everyone goes to work, wants to do a good job. We don't always get it right. I think leaders, by and large, want to lead well. They want to be excellent leaders. And yet, uh, I do agree that um, if the leaders don't buy it, if they're not practicing it, we we really do learn by example. It's not what is written on the the, co- the company wall. It's what leaders are actually doing or and allowing people to, quote unquote, get away with. So, I mean, is it just, is it a human nature issue? What do you think? Well, I think that uh, it's often a lack of knowledge. I think that leaders can say things that make me just shriek as an employment attorney and, and just not knowing, right? Like not knowing what the impact um, emotionally, legally, what that impact is. And it may be something that they believed was harmless, but actually ended up being very harmful uh, because they just didn't know. And, you know, I just learn a lot, especially when I'm investigating um, about why people believe certain things or why people did certain things. And so like in, in internal investigations, that's especially where I just really get to hear every single side of a story. And and, and what things meant. Um, and, and that just has given me so much insight into why people feel aggrieved. Um, and over the course of the years, just, you know, several, you know, hundreds of people talking to me about their matters, it, it really gives me insight as well. But some of the things that I hear about what leaders do, or hearing from leaders themselves, it's, you know, oftentimes it's, it may not be, they may not have an, a malicious intent, but their impact was harmful. And so I think the lack of education can often be the biggest culprit in that organizational culture being unhealthy. Just people not knowing what to say, not knowing, not having exposure to diverse groups of people. So doing things that might be uh, harmful to certain groups and, and just not really understanding you know, not having the cultural sensitivity that they might need um, in order to have a an inclusive workplace. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's simple in the sense of just respect people, right? It's basic humanity 101. And yet it's very complex because we're all individuals. We see the world in different ways. What it means to respect me and my time might be different for somebody else, right? We really do have these different perspectives. And so being in the people business, which leadership is in the people business is highly particularized and takes time. And there's just not that much time in a day, That's which, right. which I mean, I do think we need to, our top priority are people. So we do need to slow down and pay attention. And also, I mean, maybe you could speak a little bit to this. I think people in our changing world in with globalization, with a lot of social change movements, 
some people do feel uncertain. What is okay? What is not okay? What is protected? What is not protected? And maybe they feel caught. What, what, what do you see in that area? There's a lot of new information. We are certainly in a time where technology is advancing rapidly. We have undergone several social movements in the last five years. And so there is just a host. I, I'm still learning. And I consider myself to be very, very, I mean, this is my area of expertise, but I'm still learning. And I learn from the people around me. And I feel very, very fortunate that I have such a diverse group of people around me. I live in Washington, D.C. And so every single group of person is represented here. Um, every interest is represented here. Every background is represented here. So that is, I, I and I, I think of that as a privilege and I know that if I were to go back to my hometown, grew up in Richmond, Virginia, that was just not a diverse place growing up. And so I had exposure and the gift of exposure. Um, so I think for leaders who are not uh, you know, exposed to the diversity that I or someone in New York City or you know, Los Angeles or one of our major cities um, that we've been exposed to, it can be it can feel overwhelming that you might not know what to say. But being silent is also very isolating, you know, in a workplace when you are when you don't know what to say because you haven't had exposure to certain groups of people, so you don't speak to certain groups of people. That's very isolating uh, for for people in the workplace because they don't feel comfortable if you if they feel like they're being isolated or being excluded. Leaders may just be feel overwhelmed with the amount of information coming out. I do think it's important to be intentionally curious. You know, leaders have the obligation to always be seeking knowledge. And so organizations, you know, C-suite executives, if it's a larger organization, do have the obligation to make sure that their leaders are informed because that leadership, it's going to trickle down to your employees. It's going to trickle down to your clients and to the public at large. And you are a reflection of your organization. And so it's really, really important to just always be seeking knowledge, always be learning, apologize when you make a mistake. I think we all should be uh, teaching as well. And that's really my goal as an employment attorney is to be teaching about you know, what is protected, what is okay to say at work, what's not okay to say at work, um, empowering people to speak up. And I think that that's a huge hurdle because it's hard to actually speak up for yourself in the workplace. If, if you feel like there's a power dynamic uh, or a power imbalance, it's very, I'm an advocate, so I've been trained to speak up. But at the same time, I understand that, you know, when I was in college, I was an advocate, yet it was hard for me to tell my boss. I never did, actually. I never told my boss that she was sarcastic and made me feel inferior. I never said that. And so I understand how difficult it can be to speak up for yourself, especially when you have people relying on you uh, for a job. And so it's important for leadership to make sure that, number one, bosses are informed, supervisors are informed, uh, that they are culturally aware, and that individuals feel empowered to speak up if they see something that's wrong in the workplace. I know we talk a lot today about psychological safety, and I just really love everything that's embodied in that 
Because I think it really is, as you said, this curiosity that leaders need. And if a leader wants to create psychological safety where people feel like they can actually give information and actually um, challenge without fear of being demoted or fear of losing their job or, or retaliation, that that can bring about this environment where people feel supported and being able to do their best work. And yet I see this challenge in the workplace of professionalism versus the idea of bring your whole self to work. I think it's a very confusing. I personally don't like talking about family, uh, work as family or bring your whole self to work because I don't think people really mean that. I don't think you want people's political views. I don't know how much of their religious views you want. I I don't know. (laughs) I, I think companies really don't want that. So how do you see walking the line of being a professional versus not being a professional? I know I'm asking a lot of questions here. And no I worries. A- I've got one more that I want to put in here. Sure. I think work is also in this really odd place where we're asking a lot from our employers. We're asking them to champion our social causes. We're asking them to take stands on social issues. We're asking them in a ever-increasing non-religious societies in the West to, in a way, almost take over some of those value propositions that many people found outside of work. I think it's a very volatile and confusing time. What am I supposed to be getting at work versus, you know, than just a paycheck or maybe filling my own personal mission in life? So I think that's why I think it's just this mix mash of what are people supposed to be doing and being professional? Sure. Now, that's a wonderful question. And I do personally think it's important that you're able to, that employees are able to bring their whole self to work. With that said, it's also important that everyone's views are respected. And so if your whole self encompasses bringing views that are not um, inclusive, then that that's a problem for you know everyone. That's a problem for the employer from a liability standpoint. That is a problem for the person who you know they the person who doesn't have inclusive views. They may feel like their views are inclusive, or that they should have the right to express their views. The person who is being excluded from that person's uh, because of that person's views is going to feel like they are not psychologically safe. And so that is a huge burden for an employer to bear. It's but it is their responsibility to make sure that all of these viewpoints can uh, well, it's it's important for them to balance, right? To determine is there can can everyone bring their whole self to work if one person's views exclude someone else's or if one person's expressions of their views exclude someone someone else's views and how do you balance that is that in alignment with our company culture is it in alignment with our workplace policies so i i don't have a perfect answer for that i really don't the way that I view solving that problem is to, again, ask people individually, how do they feel respected at work? So if they feel respected by being supported 
let's make sure that we uphold that value proposition. Let's, if they feel respected by someone respecting their privacy, let's not ask about what they do on the weekends. Um, that's just, I think we have to have a more individualized approach to how we talk about workplace respect so that everyone with their very, very uh, diverse experiences can come to work and be effective at performing their jobs. I agree. But I just imagine somebody being told, take, bring your whole self to work and you've got, you know, somebody who's staunchly a Democrat or staunchly a Republican, staunchly um, Roe v. Wade or staunchly the repeal of it, you know, and what is the company supposed to do? Those issues are very, they are exclusive by their very nature. And religion is exclusive because I believe I'm right. Therefore, I believe you're wrong. And on abortion, a lot of times people think, well, you're excluding me if you don't have my view. So it's just such this quagmire. And what do we want? Healthy work environments where everybody is, is respected. Indeed. And I do not have a perfect answer because those are exclusive divisive topics and they can quickly bleed over into speaking about protected categories, religion, parenthood, uh, or the, you know, your parental status. Uh, if you talk about um, other issues, they can very, very quickly go into protected issues that are legally protected under the law. So protected classes, race, color, religion, pregnancy status, all of those things are protected under federal law. And so these conversations uh, can get very, very divisive very, very quickly because they are they're binary opposites and we really, and just by the nature of, of the, of the topic, they're binary, uh, they're polar opposites. And so I think that companies have to make sure that their policies on workplace speech, number one, don't violate the National Labor Relations Act, which does regulate what you as an employer are not allowed to prohibit in terms of speech. Uh, and also your workplace policies on anti-discrimination and harassment, they also have to be in congruence with you know, the National Labor Relations Act, with your values. So it's a balancing proposition and it's going to require a consideration of all of these factors uh, to determine where that line should be drawn. Yes, I appreciate you waxing philosophical with me because no worries at all. You know, this, this, these are the practical issues that a lot of people find themselves in. And yet, I think that mostly when we talk about harassment or toxic work environments, it's more, it's usually not about these things. I think with the toxic work environment, it's typically people feel a lack of belonging. They don't feel respected. They fundamentally are being shut out. They are being either, you know, bullied or, lack of information or whatever it might be in these environments where they're just being mistreated as people. No, absolutely, Mary. I mean, they can be very, very micro. Those, yeah. these, these small, you know, every day I'm left off of an email Yeah, every day. And, and that could be something that accumulates over the course of time, but to, to internalize that, to live with that reality every single day, to feel like you're not a part of the team, that small thing, and we talk a lot about microaggressions in my field, and that small thing can become major 
to that yeah. individual person. Uh, and so it doesn't, that particular example, and that's one I give often, it doesn't arise to the level of a hostile work environment, but it's really uncomfortable. You know, I know that there have been times when I haven't been invited to lunch and that made me feel really bad. You know, I didn't know the reason why I wasn't invited to lunch, but I wasn't invited and I saw a group going and it just made me feel bad. That's not, that's not even toxic. I just, I think that was just something that happened that, but it made me feel bad. But if that happened every single day, I would really not want to work around the group of people that just did not invite me uh, to lunch consistently. Um, and so those are small things, but I do think they have psychological impact. They do affect psychological safety and they can quickly create a toxic work environment if they're repeated over and over again. And I think it goes back to what you said originally about respect and respect is individual. And so what I might think is petty if it's not petty to somebody else, it's not petty. I need to listen to them. And if this really matters to them, they're where they park or a certain whatever it might be, then I need to pay attention if I'm going to be intentionally caring for that person and they're a part of my team. And so instead of saying, oh, who cares you're left off? Oh, we can't get this email right. That is not listening. And it's not assuming that person actually knows what's important to them right? Indeed. And I think that really can get to that psychological safety or those healthy work environments where we look at people and we see them and we really want to know, how can I make your environment better? And if everybody is doing that from the person that you walk in all the way to the person at the top of the building, if everybody's really thinking about the other, how can I serve? How can I be that kind of person that makes somebody else have a, a good day. That in that idea, that is professionalism. That is treating people with care and having a place where someone can say, hey, I don't know what you intended, but this is how I felt, or this is what I see, having a place where that is listened to. Mary, I'll go back to just one example. It triggered, what you said triggered my mind. I remember Dan, he would check in periodically. He'd say, hey, what are you doing for lunch today? And I'd always be really busy. And so I would like initially just say, hey, I'm working on this deadline that you gave me. But then I remember, wait, but you gave me the deadline and you're asking me to lunch. So I guess I'm, I'm okay to step away from this project. Uh, so I would, we'd go out to lunch and he would ask Jessica, how are things going? You know, did, is there anything that we can do here that would, you know, make this environment better? You know, how are you doing? And I appreciated that comment. I think that he was one of the only bosses who ever asked me that question over the course of my career. But it's now a question that I bring back to my team to say, hey, how are things going? Uh, do you feel overwhelmed? Is everything okay? Do you have any questions for me? I just appreciated him opening the door to that conversation so that I felt empowered to say, yes, everything's going well. No, everything. This is something that I really would like to have changed. Um, but he really made me feel comfortable saying, yes, everything's okay. Or no, things are not okay. And everything was always okay. <laughs> so it was never a problem. Um, but I, I think in terms of the actual work that we did, it also allowed me to be a better associate because when I disagreed on something, I could easily go to him and say, hey, I don't agree uh, with 
perhaps the way we're wording this. Um, I think we should do it this way. And I think that just makes you a better lawyer when you're able to object to things, when you're able to have a difference of opinion, and then you can come back to determine, you know, with your team to determine what is the best course of action here. And so his ability just to hold space for a difference of opinion and for to hold space for me to offer my opinion made my work environment wonderful. It helped me develop as a professional. And so that's just something that I think we should all be doing as leaders is we should always be asking our team, how are things going for you? You know, is there something that we could change and not be afraid of what that answer is? Gosh, that's such a wonderful example because it's concrete. It's absolutely doable. It makes so much sense for all the reasons that you said. And it it talks about the the dynamic of human persons. We change and I might be fine today, but if you say, oh, you asked me and you don't ask for two more years, <laughs> and maybe I had no problems at that time with a company or myself and, you know, two years is a long time. But I think we do that like with a lot of training, like with DEI, or I'm sure getting up on legislation. Oh, we told people they should know. People don't work that way. You know, we need, it's a constant, especially if we're looking at workplace environments, it's constantly trying to make sure that we have a good environment because if you don't take care of it, it will fall apart. If you don't take care of your relationships, your relationships deteriorate. And it created that psychological safety where you felt like you could go and he really did want to hear and everyone was better off. 1000%. I still very much, I will always hold Dan in the highest esteem uh, because of what he taught me as a lawyer, but as a leader and a professional, I'm just really grateful. That is wonderful. So Jessica, as we close, do you have any advice as to what you think needs to happen so that uh, your job or my job as a workplace mediator recedes, that people have healthier, happier work environments where people are treated with dignity and respect. What do you think needs to shift in work culture in America? Well, Mary, I think that we need to ask the question, how are we respecting employees? And I don't think the question is one that has a universal answer. Everyone receives respect differently. And so that is really my mission is to train employees, employers rather, on how to build healthy, respectful workplaces and open their eyes to possibilities that they perhaps had not considered before. And so I think that when we ask that question, I do think that workplace conflict will go down. I think it's important that we hold space for the conversation. And I don't think for a variety of reasons, I don't think that companies have budgets. I don't think that companies have time. And I don't think that there have we've ever asked the question, how are people respected individually? I don't think we've ever asked that very narrow, tailored question. And so for me, that's really important. Um, and I, I really want to make sure that companies are understanding how each person within their organization experiences workplace respect and receives workplace respect. That answer resonates with me. I'm pretty much an existentialist and I love individuals and I mean, you don't respect a group, you respect individuals within that group. 1000%. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. This has been wonderful. Thank you again. You're welcome. And if you want to know more about Jessica's work, her information are in the the show notes, and I hope you look her up.
Thank you, Jessica, for your time. I really enjoy getting to talk to you today. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. My new book, How to Be Unprofessional at Work, Tips to Ensure Failure, comes out very soon, August 1st. I'm very excited about it. Please share this podcast with friends. I'd be very grateful if you liked it on whatever platform that you're listening on. If there's someone you'd like to see interviewed on Conflict Managed, please reach out. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.